to the Golf Barons Podcast, Tenuous Links, a golf pun we're not only incredibly proud of, but one we're also sure to emulate. Let us careen through bloviated opinions on all things golf, some outrageous innovation ideas to speed up the game, a few laughs, and an historical retelling of an iconic golf moment. Time to add some swagger to your swing. Welcome, Golf Barons. When it comes to stories, sometimes the best ones are right under our noses, if we take the time to stop and look around. Not many in world golf have experienced what today's guest has at such a relatively young age, well, relative to me, from dreams of playing at the top level to caddying, coaching, and becoming one of the great name droppers of all time. Welcome, Dion Kiffing. <laughs> now, I'm just thoroughly unsure if this is a, a uh, well-organised stitch-up or uh, <laughs> what it is, but I'm prepared, Philip. I'm prepared for both. <laughs> it's a well-organised stitch-up. Well, actually, a, a disorganised <laughs> stitch-up, Kipper. But, uh, but I think the reality is, is that you're journey as we tip and hear more about it and little bits about it as we go it becomes more fascinating and sometimes and this is a genuine comment your history other people tell stories of stuff that you've probably witnessed and you've actually lived the life one that that a lot of people have aspired to live two that some have actually gone through with it and then bailed and three that others have followed through and there aren't many of those and i think your, your story is a reasonable one so i want to take it the whole way back to this game of golf and Kipper the player, because we will go through Kipper the player, the caddy, the coach, and the name dropper. But I want to well, start the player, with- The player part's going to be a short little <laughs> spiel. <laughs> no, because this is also where we learn to celebrate the passion for the game, because you don't start being a flusher, and you're still. I'm still waiting for you to tell me exactly how to become one. But, but from a golf point of view, Kipper, where did it all start? Well, honestly, it started with a group of guys from school in about year nine. I think I was, well, I'm not think I was 15 at the time and they were playing golf and I was making fun of them, I guess. Old man sport, you know, the usual, usual uh, threads I used to throw out there. And they're like, well, we could beat you. And I said, well, I don't know. I said, I've never tried it. And they said, well, come out. We're playing Friday and we'll stitch you up. And so I went out Friday with my friends from school, just 18 holes, uh, ran a local course here, Dorset Golf Course. And um, I was just nothing short of horrendous. And I stood on the last hole and I'll never forget this as long as I live. And it's what made me get into the game. I stood over a six footer on the last to break 130. <laughs> and. And they are just, we've never seen anyone shoot 130. They were just into me. And that would have been like 130 with no penalties and no lost balls. No, probably like closer to 150, to be honest. Anyway, so I remember being over this six footer and I've never wanted anything at that point, like from any sport that I'd ever played so much and I hold it. And so I shot 129, as I said, not legit, but 129. And I walked off and I just went straight home to my mum and I said, Mum, can you take me straight down to the golf store? I need to buy a 7-iron. And she said, why? I said, because I've never been so bad at a sport in my life. And that was the truth of it. Every other sport came pretty easy to me. Um, I was very fortunate. That I, I was quite okay at a lot of sports. And golf, I was, I just was terrible at it. So grabbed a 7-iron and started practicing. I practiced hours and hours a day and within I think three months I could I could stitch all them up, all my mates. But I'd caught the bug and away I went and, and I, I just I dropped every sport that I was playing. I think I was up to nine sports I was playing in comp at that age. From go-karting, I used to travel around the go-karting tour, I used to do all sorts of things. But I dropped every sport within nine months and focused on golf. 
So a six foot putt. So you've actually got something in common with Carsten Solheim in terms of just that one <laughs> that one putt. He's created a solution in a, an enormous industry. Uh, you've created <laughs> Kipper Incorporated, but but it's that idea of one shot gets you hooked, and and not the hundred and twenty eight disastrous ones. <laughs> well, the truth is, I, I can. This is the other thing. Out of that round, which is obviously a, a hell of a lot of other shots, I can't remember one of them. But I remember that part. I remember exactly where I was on the green, exactly the break, the whole lot. And that was, what's that? Uh, 20, 30 odd years, 30, yeah, no, 30 odd years ago now, or just on 29 years ago. And I still remember it like it was yesterday, but I couldn't tell you anything else about that round other than I know it was very poor. So it all comes back to my one goat theory. It only takes one goat. So it doesn't matter what you build, <laughs> it only takes one goat, or in your case, yeah. one putt. When you were, and you can't remember any of the other 128 shots, and I'm not trying to remind you, but at some stage I was better at you at golf. Um, don't, don't worry, my friends still remind me of that round, <laughs> even today. So, so you're standing on the first tee. Like once you started hitting him, what were your first thoughts about this game? Because one of the challenges that golf has is it's hard. And mm. so the stickiness factor, and one thing that golf has, has got to come up against, and we've spoken about it a lot, is this stickiness factor of, it's hard, have I got the resilience mm. to persevere? So what were your first thoughts about having to swing a long club at a small ball surrounded well, by mates? I, I honestly legitimately can't remember, I guess, uh, any of the other shots, as I said, but what, the one thing that stood out to me that day when I went back home to my mum was how confronting it was. It was it was enormously confronting, and I don't know if I, if I wanted to buy the seven iron out of a love for the game that I just found, which I, I legitimately probably don't think. I think I was just – I couldn't handle being, like, so bad at, at it and I just wanted to get better at it so that I could, I don't know, not not master it, not anything like that, but just sit with the, okay, I can I could play that game if I wanted to. <laughs> but, but golf isn't like that. It's the hardest sport in the world, barring none, because it's a stationary ball and process pre, uh, produces result. And, and until you get your head around that, no hand-eye coordination in the world will make you a good player. None. I mean, look at Charles Barkley and a number of other uh, elite athletes, Rafa Nadal, like, you know, none of them can play golf necessarily straight off the bat that have amazing hand-eye. So it's not that. It's just absolute work ethic that gets you good at this game. So you, you went from uh, being sick of being crap – which mm. everyone who's ever played golf has got sick of being crap. Our rise is not quite as significant or meteoric. So, so when did it stop being a? I'm, I want to get good because I don't want to be crap. Versus I want to be good because this game is just awesome. About three to six months. Three to six months in, I was I was practicing really hard. I remember, and every day after school, and then I was even looking to take off. You know, time at school, and I don't know. I just got a, a massive, uh, you know, I guess obsessive almost at that point, um, because it just was engulfing me. I was getting better and better and better, and all I wanted to do was just keep playing. And I know then and there, and that's why I, I kind of made a decision to dump all my other sports. I remember talking to the careers counselor actually, and they called me in, and you know, as they always do, going into year ten. I was in ten, year ten actually at that time. They're like, "Oh, what do you do? Want to do with your life?" And I. I remember saying to them, I just have to pick which sport I want to play for a living. And he just laughed at me in the face. He just absolutely laughed at my face. And, and I couldn't believe – I went home and told mum. I was quite upset. I'm like, he just laughed at me. <laughs> and she said, well, he, he hasn't probably heard that many people say that. And I said, yeah, but 
Like, why, why, why did he laugh at me? <laughs> but I, I didn't get it at the time because I, I wanted to play sport for a living. So it was, it was one of those things where, um, yeah, once I'd done it for six months or even shorter, probably, yeah, I, I knew that I, I'd, I found a love for this game that I, I couldn't put down. And what was your transition to improvement? So, so was this just a, I read golf my way and said, wow, yeah. that looks good? Or did you get, you know, did, did you get well, the help of a pro or? Well, back in my day. <laughs> I didn't have YouTube. I didn't have you know, any real uh, videos as such. You know, VHS, a couple of those things, the Norman uh, Dorf on, They had Dorf on yeah. golf. Yeah, a couple of those things, but really nothing. So it was books. Uh, early days, I, I got uh, Five Lessons from Hogan book. Mm-hmm. I remember someone put me onto that, and that was a you know an amazing book. It's still, I think, the, the number one t- tutorial book in the world, to be honest. But yeah, read Jack Nicholas My Way, a few of those books. But really, there was a pro at my original um, club that offered to give me a lesson a week on a Saturday for free because um, oh, he, he saw how much that I was training and he said, look, I'll coach you every week for free, but you've got to turn up and, and do what I say. And and uh, and I did, and I, I, I'll never forget that. Uh, so, yeah, Andrew McRae, thank you. And, um, Pump him up. Yeah, just, just a, a genuine jet. But, yeah, and then uh, from that point, once I sort of got a bit of education about what I should be doing, it was just training. I, I remember I practised, um, people don't believe me, but for 14 hours a day, I remember getting up, Getting to the golf course before six at times, and uh, and I'd hit balls. Sometimes I tried to hit between fifteen hundred to two thousand balls a day, and I'd try to break. My goal was I had a net there as well at my course. I'd try to break three balls minimum in half. That was my sort of goal for the day. And so yeah, I'd train from six in the morning till now about ten at night under the lights they had near the clubhouse and hit ball after ball after ball after ball after ball. And I just thought if I'm training as hard as as there's daylight and then then some there can't be really many people doing more than that so I just figured with kind of how I was at every other sport the more I practiced the better I got but the thing about this game is it doesn't work like that the more you practice the worse you can get um, because process produces result and I just oh it was a confronting couple of years to be honest because I, I wasn't getting the leaps and bounds that I thought I would be getting and realized that there had to be another way because what I was doing was the most anybody was doing and yet I wasn't getting as the, the, the rewards I should have been. Yeah, so there's, there's that rule of 10,000 hours of around practice, mm. but it's got to be good quality practice and you've got to be practicing in the right direction. So was it was mm. it the quantity or the quality of your practice that, that you felt in the end when you were able to sit back and analyse it was – was holding you back? Was it that you were practicing with great work ethic, but the wrong things, or did you just fry yeah. yourself? Yeah, no, I definitely practiced the wrong way, uncategorically, for a long period of time. Um, but I didn't know any better, and no one could help me. Like, you know, I moved around from different coaches and, and whatnot, and and it. it you know, some of them were, were quite helpful, but to be honest, none of them had, you know, the skill set of modern, a lot of the modern day elite coaches that you can kind of look at online and see kind of how to train and biomechanics and actual facts, which I didn't have. It was a little bit of this and try a little bit of that and keep your head still and do this. And there wasn't, you know, this move is a fundamental that every single elite player for the history of the game has done. And you don't do it. So let's work out a way to do that. And so that part I found very frustrating. And it wasn't until I want to say I started at 15 and kind of fell in love with it at 16. So about 
10 to 12 years later when I was 28 and I'd been in America for a long time, did I finally have a grasp on my golf swing and what it should should and shouldn't look like. Um, and it took a long time and I was around then the best players and the best coaches in the world. But geez, it was a journey to get to a point where I'm like, right, I, I now and categorically understand what this movement-based sport's all about. And I went through hell to get there, to be perfectly honest. But it was my my diligence of practice that kind of got me there. But I, geez, I, I could have got there so much quicker had I known. And the old saying, you don't know what you don't know. But um, yeah, it's not all about just hitting balls, that is for sure. So on that journey, and just to take a little bit back and further, the little highlights that, that pop out along the way. By chance, do you remember your first part or your first birdie? Yep. I actually had, a, had an eagle before I had a par or a birdie. Okay, cop that, listeners. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, well, yeah, and you'll, you'll love this story, Philip. It's a short par four that you can drive, but when I was little, I couldn't drive it. So you have to hit around the water instead of over the water. So around the water, I went with me three wood um, out to the left, and then I had like a nine iron in, and I kind of half skull this thing. <laughs> And it runs up the front edge, hit the flag in the middle and drops in for two. And uh, <laughs> I'll still never forget that shot. Uh, yeah, so I'd had – that was an eagle I made before I'd made a par or a birdie. That's- but it wasn't very clean. <laughs> and with that, we'll conclude today's uh, discussion with Kipper. <laughs> <laughs> so- well, yeah, I say, the, the, the harder I uh, – Rather I practice, the luckier I get. Well, that's uh, certainly true. It's funny. I heard a similar story about someone who was playing down at uh, the National who uh, quite clearly had hit their ball through the green and then claimed it went in, having sculled it. Um, <laughs> anyway, we'll move on from that. Yeah. And at what point – so just going back to your youth, at what point did you say, I want to see how good I can get, but not only that, this is what I want to do for a living? Was there a moment that said, this is me, other than when yeah. the guidance counsellor? Yeah. Yeah, no, 100%. I, I reckon I was – as I said, I kind of liked the game and played it for six months till I was hooked. I reckon 12 months in, when I was just before my 17th birthday, that I'd made a decision, this is what I, I was going to try to do. And and the, the beauty of it is, right, I see a lot of youth today, you know, they've got, they got to go to uni and whatnot, and it's an arduous journey, and I, I don't um, – undercut that at all but in the end they get something out of it a little bit of paper and a, and a diploma or whatever and they, they, they've passed the scary thing about for me about golf or any elite sport is there was no guarantee it was just give it a go and see how you go and so that part was a i suppose the hardest part it was how long do you keep pushing the envelope for and, and trying to, you know, get out and tour or trying to make a living from it. And that's probably the hardest part to get your head around. But I made that decision at, at age 17. And did you have anyone driving you, like from a competitive point of view? Because, you know, one thing is to to drive yourself, but the other one is to say, I need to keep up with, with mm. someone else. I mean, was this just a self-driven, I'm going to do was- it on my own? Or did you, did you end up surrounding yourself with people who both could beat you and you could beat? I mean, how did... Yeah, no, it was totally self-driven to start with. I remember that because I didn't really have anyone to train with or practice. Or and then you obviously find friends at the golf course, and you get this huge network that you you um, you know have for life. I suppose it's the beauty of golf courses and, and members. But in the end, I found a little junior who I took on his first clinic, and that was a little lad called Aaron Badley. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so was- he, um, he he rolled along uh, for a junior clinic once, and the pro who I'd seen obviously I've been getting coaching for a little while. He said, "Can you help out these juniors?" 
juniors and he was one of them. So he was not very good at the time, but then he got good real quick. And in the end, I kind of asked him, you know, how how are you getting so good? And then he spoke about a great coach in Dale Lynch and – so I thought I'll, I'll go and see Lynchy, and yeah, it was it was at that point then that was when my golf sort of started to take a professional approach as well because Lynchy was, you know, very methodical and Bads was getting better and better, and we we kind of got better and better and better together, but then he just kept getting better. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but that, but that's okay, and that's an important acknowledgement, and we'll get onto that. But but how good? So you at your peak when it came to golf, how good was good? I mean, we take the piss about how you hit it and how you swing it, and purely because we're disappointed that someone can actually make it look as easy as you do, even though you do hit your wedges out of the toe. And as we know, that's just not the right place to hit them. But <laughs> but at the peak of your powers, you're standing on the first tee of any course of any given day. Is there a limit to the number you were thinking you could shoot? Or more importantly, how low have you gone? Hmm. Well, I've shot a couple of nine-unders, so that, that's the lowest I've gone. But the... I suppose the thing about golf is you you never can you ne- you never play that perfect round really ever. Even when people shoot fifty nine and so on. Like one day I was on, I reckon I was on run for fifty nine, but I ended up shooting nine instead of um, twelve. Which uh, but I felt like I could, and there was a difference because when I started to get okay. I wanted the holes to end. I kept counting, geez, there's only five holes left and I'm doing all right. Even if I leak oil, I'll, 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 yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll do all right today. But then there's that, there's that definitely, for me anyway, there was that definite flick of, I don't want the holes to finish. I know the more holes that, that I have, the more I guess I'm going to go under par and the deeper I'm going to get. And that was a huge mental mind change for me. But look, I, I think it, summarizing my play, I, I was okay at the game, but- when I compared myself to the very, very best players, and I did get a chance to do that quite regularly, like I, I played with Phil Mickelson quite a lot. You know, we'll get on to you, we'll get on to your name dropping. But, just, but yeah, is that right? But but the I suppose the point of him bringing the, the, the man up was he had a you know real big chat to me in the early days about which direction did I want to take, um, you know, the professional line or, or, or caddy line, and it was it was really hard for me to. We'll get on to that. I know it was hard for me to to um to make that decision, but I knew that I didn't have the game at that point, but I didn't give up on it ever. It's only since I've turned in my 40s that I've probably put the cue in the rack in terms of playing um, Ever Elite again. But you just never can give up on that dream of, of being one of the best players in the world, even though the reality was that you didn't get there. You knew it wasn't that far away, but there was a definite gap between so, me and the best players. Yeah, so I'll, I'll touch on a little bit about uh, – because I do want to understand a bit more about that conversation because you've mentioned that in the past and you can go into it at whatever detail you want, and I know it's still raw. But the, psych- the psychological preparation, I suppose, is one thing. When you look at kids coming through today, I've got my sports physio and I've got my, mm. my coach and I've got my assistant coach. I've got my back line, you know, my halfbacks, my wings. I've got rucks <laughs> So they're surrounded with an enormous team, one part of which is often a sports psychologist or a mental coach or a a mind coach or otherwise. Do you think that having control of of that side of your game could have made any difference at all? Or do you think that that is a, to many, is actually a safety net so they can blame something? And that's, sorry, I'm I'm potentially leading the witness, Your Honour, but. But I'm wondering no, I, how much I, I understand wholeheartedly. Now, now, my um, honest opinion on this one, Phil, after being in this game for 30-odd years, is 
yes, you know, it's good to be good in the head and all the rest of it, but, you know, the greatest players that ever lived didn't have any of these, you know, necessarily mind coaches on board every week. You know, certainly likes of Byron Nelson and these guys, never, not in a million years. So it's not like it's a necessity. I'm sure it helps, absolutely, but it's not a necessity, no way in, in the world. It, it purely comes down to are you good enough you know, six inches either side of the golf ball from a technical standpoint to whether you're going to be a world beater. It's that simple. Now, all these golf swings that are very different, you know, you've got a few of them out there at the moment, the Wolves and so on. All of it's just, you know, show, the backswing and the follow-throughs. It's just they're all the same basically through the ball. And that part I never had. Um, and there's a couple of players that are on the on the main tour that still don't have it, but they're battling away week by week, and you'll have your good runs. You'll time the ball well and all the rest of it, but no, it's a technical issue that of how good or how proficient you are through impact that will make you an elite player or not. And all the f- stuff around it, whether you're fit, <laughs> you know, healthy, mentally stable, all that stuff can help 100%, but it's not why you get there. You get there because you hit the golf ball awesome and you putt awesome and you chip awesome. Yep. What was the context of this conversation? And again, don't you don't need to go into any details of it, but the conversation, because you, you have said that was the turning point and you just mentioned it before, but you've mentioned it previously, that mm. that the chat effectively where someone says, mm, are you mm. sure? Yeah. Yeah, because well, basically, I mean, I got, I suppose, lucky to be around these players because I did a wrist injury and at the time, Bads got into a couple of events as an amateur and he just said to me, this is Aaron Badley for those listening, said that, uh, you know, do you, you want to come out and caddy on tour because I, um, I'm in these events and it's what we're going to do in the future, so let's just go and see what it's all about. And so I quit my job and I'm like, right, let's just go for, for three or four months and see what happens. And ironically, how it all played out, but obviously second event in, he wins the Australian Open and <laughs> just all, all hell broke loose in terms of a life change for the pair of us. Yeah. And anyway, fast forward that to then being introduced to you know, the best players in the world and, and being around them. And then Phil Mickelson's management company wanted to, or the, he, the management company that was associated with Phil, wanted to manage Aaron. So we had a lot to do with them in the early days. And yeah, and I went out to San Diego and played with Phil. We went to the Titleist Test Facility and and then we went and played. And, and that's the first time Phil had ever met either of us, really. And after the round, he's like, you know, he was, it was very nice. And he said, you play great. Like, what? What are you doing carrying it back? And I just said, well, you know, it's. I told him I not fell into it, but that's how it all sort of played out. Yeah, he was very candid with me. He said, well, you got a decision to make. You're on this guy's bag and he wants to be number one in the world. And I'm not saying that you can or can't, but you, if you're on this guy's bag, are going to not be a player. He goes, you can't do both, unfortunately. He goes, Bones made that decision for me years ago and I'm indebted f- to him forever because of that, but that was his decision and I made him own that decision. Don't regret it. And he said, you make a decision. Do you want to play the game or do you want to be a caddy? And he said, and when you come to that decision, make sure you, you tell Aaron and make sure you, you own it. And it was, a, it was a really confronting conversation to have, but it was also a very good one because the one thing about Phil is he, he he's very straight with you. He really is. He's in all, like, all our dealings we've ever had. He straight down the line, tell you how it is and and so, yeah, I walked away from that day um, just thinking I didn't know I had to make a decision up until he basically yeah, told yeah. me that. I really didn't. I was just a young kid. I'd, I'd, um, I think I was, uh, what was I, 21 at the time. And, you know, you didn't, didn't have a worry in the world. And he uh, overseas and playing, about to play Augusta or caddy at Augusta for the first time. All this stuff and was happening. 
And I still absolutely had this dream of playing. And then I'm like, shit, I probably do because Bads wants to be number one in the world. And he, it was absolutely short with me saying, if you want to be on my bag, you have to be the best caddy in the world. Yeah. So there, there is no holes barred here. You have to learn off the best. He set up meetings with Bones McKay and I did learn from him and all this. Uh, so like everything Aaron done, you, expl- you explained well about the team before. He was putting a team in place and I was a part of that team at that point. But if I wasn't in for a pound in for a penny, I was going to be gone. And that was Aaron being Aaron. You know, he wanted to be the best in the world. So, yeah, so I I had a bit of time to think about it, but, you know, you know, six months or a year, I guess, to think about it because that wasn't going to stop me being a, a great caddy and learning. And I made the decision, I can learn more right now doing what I'm doing with Aaron than I ever could going back to hit golf balls because what opportunity do you get to be around the best players and coaches in the world doing this? So I made that decision. And then, yeah, that went on for quite a while. And as it went on, I'd come back to Arizona and continue to practice whenever I could. But I, to be honest, I think there wasn't a moment where I gave up ever. I really wasn't. Um, even into my 30s, like, you know, decades later, because I did go back and try to play on tour and all the rest of it. I just knew that I was better off. I really knew I was better off over there caddying for that period of time because of the level that I was at with my game. And no two months of practice or three months of practice was going to make me, you know, a world beater. I needed to keep chugging along on the journey before I took that plunge or before the, not even take the plunge, before you actually work your way into these events. So he got bads.com. How come you didn't get kipper.com? Mate, I was a, oh, I was a star on these websites. <laughs> <laughs> There we go. He's, now he's dropping his own name, people. Uh, you, you'd have a laugh at the website when it was- Because we were, as you know, he was the first dot-com player in the world, apparently. Uh, no tennis player, no one was a dot-com. He was but He just called com. himself a- Yeah, he was a dot-com player. So, yeah, I had a blog on there. What's Dion up to? All this stuff. Oh, God, it was horrendous. And if anyone knows me well, they know I can't push a computer around to save myself. So, I just- Send emails and st- oh, it's just horrible. I hated it. Anyway, yeah, what was Dion up to? It was on the on the website back in the day, but got taken down. <laughs> <laughs> what was it? So, so you've we've seamlessly moved on to Kipper the Caddy, and we know how it came about. Do you remember your first tournament? And did you have any nerves as a caddy? Mm. No, no, not at all. The first, actually, the first string of tournaments probably sets everything up in terms of my headspace. It was first tournament was Jacobs Creek Classic in in Adelaide, and back those days, it was a pretty big event. You know, the, the best players in the world really showed up for that because it was pre. Next lead in after that was the Australian Open, and followed by a few other events, PGA and so on. And it was a big event. Norman used to play in it. Anyway, Bad's got an invite to it, so over we go. And yeah, yeah, like. They always say, you know, when you're young, you, you don't get nerves in anything, you know, Formula One racing or whatever. You just don't, you're not aware. You're just young and you're going at it. And that's, that was the truth for me. I, I kind of learnt my craft pretty quick from cutting. I studied as much as I could over the course of probably three or four months leading into it with some events. We played the Vic PGA here and Bad's come second and, it is an art caddying and, and you've got to learn it. So I just try my best to try to learn it, read up on it, what, what, what makes a good caddy and what doesn't. And anyway, long story short, um, no, I wasn't nervous really at all because as a player, you, you get nervous because you're in control of your arms and your legs and they hold onto the club and you can stuff it up. But as a caddy, you can be methodical. You can be devoid of, um, emotion and, Therefore, you, it, you know, if you switched on, it's hard to make a mistake. 
but you've got to be switched on. I found it, no, not, not nerve-wracking at all. I went into more of a, yeah, methodical kind of um, approach to caddying where I was, yeah, learning more about psychology actually out there than anything. I read a lot of books on it, just how to effectively ride your player home without them knowing about it. So, yeah, even from a, my very first couple of events, no, I wouldn't say I was really nervous much at all. Even on the second event when we were – obviously, Bads was, you know, leading the Australian Open uh, for those going back there in 99 and we were in the last group with Colin Montgomery and I remember walking on that first tee and, you know, last round and crowds going berserk for the young kid and I wasn't – yet again, I wasn't nervous then but I was very – I guess, an, aware of Aaron's nerves and managing him. So, I continually was in the space of how can I get him out of that, you know, short circuit of mind space there where I know he's nervous and how, I, how can I move him on to the next shot? How can I keep him in the present? How can I distract him? So, I was probably more working than get, taking in the nerves. So, just on that, and as a little aside, so you mentioned your journey as a player and then your journey as a caddy and what you've learned from both. Can I just ask, on behalf of young players coming through, aspiring or otherwise, how often have you been approached to speak to either aspiring caddies or aspiring players about the the pitfalls, the commitment that's required? And I know there's a bit of a lag now, but you've actually lived Mm. this is the whole point of the story. You've lived a life that others potentially are aspiring to live or about to live, and you've been Mm. there and you've made some mistakes, you've had hard conversations, but you've been around the best in the world, how often is that resource tapped into by, given you're in Australia, but anywhere around the world mm. in, in terms of your knowledge base? Well, I used – well, I guess when I finished caddying and moved back to Australia, which is you know, 10 or more – I don't even know how many years, 10 or 12 years ago now, maybe more, I did a lot of this little speaking events at, um, you know, especially you know, world junior events and I did, you know, stuff around the traps and sportsman's nights and stuff. But – when I'd done quite a lot of them, what I, I suppose I got a little bit tired of it because people wanted the stories and I understand that and, you know, the, the humour and who did what and who said so on. And Those it wasn't bastards. No, but it wasn't <laughs> that. They, they weren't necessarily in, enthralled and, and understandably about how to get better or what yeah, to do okay. or what to learn. So, I, I kind of just lost interest in doing them. I really did. And it was like, you know, when you- <laughs> You see an old footballer wheel himself out at about 70 or 80 years old telling, telling stories. I'm like, oh, I don't want to be that guy. <laughs> I, don't want, I don't want to be living in the past for the next 60 years. Because another friend of the, the program, Andrew Shooten, is as an ex-player now on Cameron Davis's bag mm. on the US tour, is showing there's a real affinity because you've actually lived, you've lived the life, there's genuine empathy about understanding nerves standing over a shot. Mm. Or an important shot, or otherwise, and it's interesting that that there are a lot of maybe elite amateurs who become caddies, or maybe some elite amateurs, maybe some just can't mm. swallow their pride enough to become a, a caddy. What makes a great caddy? I think I think you need three or four things. You, you need to be switched on in terms of obviously just the, the math side of things, so you don't make a mistake. That's just a, a you know a small part, but a very important one. You need to be able to read the weather conditions quite well, and that might require you actually going and studying a bit of uh, meteorology and so on to, to get the air pressure and, and uh, density and, and how it dew point and everything that changes during the day. So that that is a, an art in itself, just so you know how far a ball's travelling. 
but I think for me, once you get all those things okay, um, and also, you know, the art of, I suppose, helping your player as well, like throughout throughout the day, like with reading putts and and maybe knowing the craft of golf. You don't have to be an elite player to be a caddy. There's a lot of, lot of caddies that aren't, but it, it kind of does help a little bit also to know limitations on ball curvature if they're trying to play out of trees and, you know, breaking putts and all the rest of it, it does help a little bit there. But the, but the fourth thing, and in my opinion, that the most important is knowing how to read your player's emotions and knowing how to get them in and out of their concentration point, right? Because I remember yet again learning from all the caddies I could and when we first met up with um, Tiger and Stevie, I, I said to Stevie, look, give me, is there anything you can help me with, any advice? And he said, yeah, because I'll give you a big tip. They don't need you. And uh, in typical Stevie fashion, like he's very blunt. And I had a laugh. I said, well, okay. And he's like, he's like, yeah, if you get, you get your head around that, you'll be a great caddy. They don't need you any day of the week, of the year to shoot six under. They don't need you. They can do that good. He said, but when they do need you, as he goes, when you're walking down the stretch on a Sunday afternoon, when all their body goes numb and they can't feel the club and their relationship to the grip and all everything goes weird, he goes, you have to be in a position to help them get through that and understand, you know, when to hold them and fold them and not get into emotion yourself. He said, so that's when they'll really need you. And he goes, and if you're really good, he goes, you'll find one or two or three shots around where that'll be the case, where they are better off having you than not having anybody. And he said, at the end of the week, that can add up to seven or eight shots that you have helped with that without you, they may have gone down a little bit of a burrow. And so understanding that you're not the be all and end all, <laughs> you know, you're not the hero out there. You're just a helper. And and I loved watching Stevie for that reason. Like he was so good at his craft, but when things finished and uh, you'd walk off the 18th green, he would, you know, not stand around and talk to friends in the gallery or any, he, he was just such a professional. He'd barrel off to the putting green and stand there for an hour and a half next to the bag until Tiger finished his lunch or he, he would never go and have lunch. He just was, yeah, he was, when he was at work, he was at work and I, I sort of held a, a lot of respect for him for that regard and, and that's that sort of comes back to answering the question. Like that is I think the most important part is you're there to work for your guy and the minute you lose sight of that and start to get caught up in it, um, like, you know, apparently sort of fluff Cowan did back in the day um, with Tigger, you, you, you lose sight of why you're there. If you're good enough, you'd be hitting the ball, <laughs> but you're not. Right? So figure out how to be a great caddy. Here's a uh, here's a loaded question for you. Can a good caddy win you a major or just lose you one? A bit of both, yeah, a bit of both. Majors are an interesting one because you've got to be unbelievably good to get there. <laughs> so, you know, yeah, the truth yeah. of the line is, it, you know, no, doesn't matter if Joe Punter has uh, Stevie Williams on the bag, you ain't winning a major. Uh, <laughs> so, you've got to actually be a the best player in the world to be there and to start with. So, but yeah, during the week, um, and and as you go, it's sort of also too. The more majors that you get in contention for, I think the more a caddy helps. So one-time major winners can sometimes fall over the line because they kind of didn't know they were there to start with. Like, of course they did. They're in the field and whatnot, but doesn't get all encumbersome for them. And, and But when you watch you know, multiple major winners down the stretch, their teamwork with their, their caddy is always brilliant. It's just, it's not a surprise that they're there each week. It's kind of like the your race car team. They've, they've got a good unit around them. And what advice would you give a young uh, aspiring caddy yeah. then? Because you've spoken a lot about the, the time you spent with Bowen mm. and just picking up on, and I think you've probably just summarised it 
then anyway. But the time you spent with Bones, the time you've spent with Stevie watching, even Navarro watching, mm. listening, learning, what's the one tip you could give to someone to say who says, I'm going to go and be a caddy? Yeah, well, then do this. Mm. Yeah, I would say the one tip I'd give someone trying to be a caddy is be – I'll give them two – be super prepared. If you honestly want to do that, right, and you want to be a car park caddy and go and wait at the Australian Open or the US Open or the British Open in a car park and hope to God one of their other caddies don't turn up and you're ready because that's how you basically get a job. There's no caddy list. Right? You're just in the car park waiting to, you know, hopefully a player just needs someone. You need to be ready because you need to study the course, you need all the, the book, but then have your own measurements. So be prepared ultimately if you were to caddy for Greg Norman. Because right, it kind of happened, happened to me one day. That's another story. But you've got to be prepared to caddy for the greatest player on earth if they come along. So be methodical. But the second thing I would say is when you do get a, a bag and you become a looper, don't try to be a hero or to put your influence in on their game. They're there because they're one of the best players in the world. So walk around the old put up or shut up. You know, it, it, you don't need to say anything unless asked. And if you're asked, tell them the truth. And and that's 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 that'd be my biggest tip. Um, because lots of caddies they don't tell the truth. They're happy to be yes men and don't want to get in trouble and yeah, they they're, they're nervous almost about upsetting the apple cart. Well you gotta be nervous to upset the apple cart. That's what you're there for. Otherwise I'm- and sometimes yeah, and sometimes when you're asked not to speak for example, in the second round of the US <laughs> Open at Winged Foot, uh, don't, just don't speak. Yeah, I've um, <laughs> not to speak many times. But we won't go over yeah. that again. But but I can't let this bit go. You said that's another story. You mentioned Greg Norman. Mm. That's another story. Yeah. Well, because- What's the other story? Well, one day at the um, the lakes in Sydney, uh, Greg Norman International, that's what it was, <laughs> his own tournament, which we which we won that week. I was caddying for Bads. Drop another and one. Yeah, and we- yeah, we, Sergio was out. We beat little Serge in the playoff. I don't know if you recall that, but a ripping event. Anyway, yeah, Norm's had a practice round with us on the Wednesday, I think it was. Uh, it might have been Tuesday, but it was either way. And get out there, and Tony fell really ill. He's caddy Navarro. Tony Navarro fell really ill. And so Norm's rocks to the first two with no caddy. And he's like, some one of his friends or his trainer said, oh, I'll carry the bag. He goes, but I don't know what I'm doing. So so Greg's like, you're up to caddy for me for the day and, and let me know what's going on with the new changes. And and he was obviously in typical Greg fashion, like kind of straight at you, you ready? And I'm like, yeah, absolutely I'm ready. And I was. I was 100% ready because I'd spent hours and hours and hours out there on Monday by myself. And then after a practice around Tuesday, went out until dusk getting, you know, different breaks on greens and carries on areas that weren't in the books. And so I was 100% ready. And I'm like, yeah. So then the whole round, Greg's just asking me everything, lines on traps, carries. And even though I had the book, most of them had them in my head. So I was 100% ready. So yeah, I didn't, I guess, legitimately lift his bag and caddy for him. But to to the letter of the law, but basically did for the day. And that comes back to that, be ready. Not just if your own player, but if the greatest player that's one of them that's ever lived asks you a few questions. And it happened again years later at the opening of a heritage golf course with Jack Nicholas and, and Ian Baker Finch. Same thing. I'd, I'd thought, I had, we had a fun round out there, but we flew in a helicopter from the the Australian Masters out to the golf course to meet up with Jack and and. To, okay, to, name dropping was yeah. meant to come later, <laughs> but go on. Shut up, Philip. <laughs> I just it breaks my heart. This name dropping because it's so further from who I am. But if, without saying them, it doesn't doesn't give the story anything. Anyway, point is, we it was just a ch- uh, not charity. It was an opening of the course. So Hang on, who were you in the helicopter? Just with? Bads and me. 
and 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 we we're meeting Nicholas and Finchie out there to open the Heritage Golf Course years ago, years and years ago, twenty years ago. Anyway, we fly out there, and but I knew we were doing this the week before, and I know they don't really have a yardage book, so I made my own and lasered everything and did. I just went out there one night and did the whole thing. Just on the off occasion that I I didn't want to look like an idiot and I didn't want to be underprepared for what might be, I didn't know what a you know opening consisted of one shot or eighteen holes. I had no idea. So anyway, it was nine holes and thank God I did because first hole, what have we got? Oh, I don't know. There's hundred on the sprinkler cap. They're all saying, and, but I had every little bit of detail. So there I went and away again, helping Jack and 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 Ian yet again not look like idiots because if they hit a wedge, they know exactly how far it's going. And all of a sudden, yeah. air mailing greens and pins back and left. So. Yeah, the preparation was, a, was an important part. And Jack didn't know the outages, even though he designed the course. Yeah, and the beauty about Jack too is the, <laughs> the, the older he gets, it doesn't matter. You could you could tell Jack it was 400 metres. He would just hit whatever shot he wants to hit and just, you know, <laughs> <That's right. laughs> doesn't care. Now, transition. We'll leave Caddy there. The, the transition, though, from Caddy to coach, hmm. because you, you did coach on the US PGA Tour. Hmm. So, so tell us how that happens. I mean, to your point about, you know, diplomas and all the rest, but there's no formal training. You haven't got a badge after your name that says you're a coach or you're a member of the Coaches Master Clinic Association of <laughs> Northern Tasmania. So just give us a bit of an insight into how you go from player where you learn a bit to caddy where you probably learn a lot to then being able to mm. teach. Well, I, I guess that comes – Back to you know why I was trying to get good in the first place, which was I had a a um, uh, an insufficient action that didn't work, and I wanted to become really proficiently sound with my golf swing. So I, I studied golf swings like like well, no one that I know. I just studied every little bit about them I could possibly understand. And then when I went over caddying for Bads, and then Bads switched coaches to Leadbetter. I started to get coached by Led because Led would fly out to Bads' house and, and he would coach him for the whole week. But then there was a lot of downtime because, you know, Aaron's only hitting balls for two or three hours a day. So when he wasn't coaching Bads, he'd just help me out. So that kind of was a really cool thing because, you know, no one gets to co- get coached by Led. It was, uh, it was an amazing um, opportunity for me. So I just took it a step further and. Um, when I had my sessions with him, I'd just bring my computer and I'd bring up a weird swing, not a, not a beautifully aesthetically looking swing, a weird one, and I'd, and I'd just say, "Led, can you explain to me why this works? What what why does this work?" And and then, and that went on for quite a while, and I'd just continue to get, I guess, knowledge around what actually matters in a golf swing. And then Aaron went to some other amazing coaches as well, so I'd bounced off them, and and then. Eventually, when I came back to Australia and then I flew over to play and blah, 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 I did a wrist injury again. I actually snapped my arm, um, so it's a bit different than a wrist injury, and couldn't play. So my only real option there was let's coach a little bit in Australia until I'm good enough to go back again. So I started coaching at an indoor centre here called Golf Tech, and that was it with, with one arm. <laughs> and away I went, and that was the first time I'd kind of coached, let's call it professionally, but I'd been coaching – on tour for a long time, really, but only my player and a couple of other little players as a tip-based kind of thing. Once they see you coaching or helping out the best putter in the world and he's asking you questions, that, that that's Bad's asking me going, what am I doing here? What's what's this? What's that? And you're actually helping him. They understand that, that oh, he must be a little bit more than a, just a bag toter. He might actually know a little bit. And because you're out there every week with these guys, it's not long before they like, what do you reckon of this, Steve? Or what do you? And that's how it kind of starts. And so when you're out there, you do find yourself helping out players that are the best players in the world on little things because you you do know a lot and you're around it all the time. 
So when I came back, coached here properly, I, I guess, if, uh, from an official standpoint. That's it. I'm a coach for six months or a year. And then got a call up from, from Bads. He was really struggling and, and he's like, can you come and help me? I'm, I'm halfway through the year and I'm, I'm nowhere near. I'm not going to retain my card. So that was the first time I'd flown over and coached on the US tour and, um, and then just helped out other players for the rest of the season. But I suppose it was one of my most rewarding half years ever, uh, cause he got there in the end and he led a tournament in Canada actually with, um, on the Saturday, which he hadn't done for four years. So it was such a euphoric time to watch one of your best mates get out of what was an amazing slump. I remember walking at the Greater Greensboro Open from the practice fairway under the race up to the first hole and Aaron just turned around and hugged me and started crying. Like he was just broken. He knew that he did have no clue where that ball was going on the first tee. And oh, it was so confronting. And he just walked up. Of course, the crowd goes nuts and he has the towel over his face, just pretending he's hot and sweaty, but he was wiping away the tears. And he's up first, grabs his driver and peels one down the, t- down the first and actually rips it down the middle. And the crowd goes nuts. And in the happy days, he walks over to his bag and he, he just slumped. And I remember thinking, it's just relief it went where he was aiming. He had no idea where it was really going and now he's got another 18 holes and another 72, well, 30-odd shots, full-blooded full shots that he has to go through that for. <laughs> it was horrible. So to watch the end of that year and, as I said, he wrapped up his tour card and finished, I think, sixth in that event and, and uh, just the pressure off him and his family. He had a job for another year and I'll, I'll never forget that year. But I also remember coming home and – making the call not to go back because I just didn't want that lifestyle to continue on. Yeah. And you'd still ride the bumps of success. I mean, we spoke about this as well when you, you're watching Aaron play desperate for him to mm. to win and succeed and and still looking through both friends' eyes and coaches' mm. eyes and, and riding the highs and lows. Do you think that would have been one of the big challenges for Cole Swatton and Jason Day knowing that, yeah, caddy and coach, there's actually not a separation or do you think it actually – is it not a bad combination? She's hard when it worked for him for so long, didn't it? But gee, you got to be very, very good at your um, your ability to separate at times because it, it's oh, it's it's so consuming. You're around them every day, every minute of the day, and under you know, enormous pressure and stress. And yeah, you get to a point where anything they say can agitate you, and <laughs> you know, it's just the way it is. So to have someone then sort of go, oh, guess what, you. You know, your pressure on your right foot's, you know, wavering. It's on the outside. Like, like shut up. I don't want to hit. Like, there's yeah. a point I reckon that would come. So, you, yeah, you have to be very, you'd have to draw some really good boundaries. Did you ever consider not giving Alan B swing advice then, oh, given the fact that was the- any little thing would agitate oh, well, him? That's, that's <laughs> half the reason we uh, we had the big Barney at uh, Wingfoot is I tried to help him on the putting green and wow, we, I shouldn't have. And But I'd been helping him for like two years. <laughs> But <laughs> I was just didn't want to hear it that day. Yeah. Anyway, no. Yeah. It's a. Uh, it was actually that, that's right. We'll move. Yeah. We'll move go on. on. No. I was, actually, that's actually why we got good though, is because I didn't say a word about anything for the first three tournaments until he asked. And um and uh, going back to that tip I was saying before, like it's a, it's a good thing to do the old shut up because it's you know when someone's ready they'll ask. Um and and yeah. so yeah so but just in the end didn't work. <laughs> um. Tell me. Tell me. So, so now you're, you're coaching and trying to put on 15 miles an hour with people like me as part of um, Operation Champ. I mean, obviously, I'm the ideal student, but from an ideal student point of view, what, what advice would you give someone heading into a lesson either for the first time or again or someone who might have 44 putts in the stroke round and <laughs> finally realise that they need uh, to bring their putter to a this lesson? This is such an easy answer, and I reckon 99% of people that come out of lessons could, would not achieve this answer, and that is upon leaving – 
your lesson with your pro lady or, or man, please write down in a one sentence what you're supposed to do. Because like, I ask a lot of my students at the end of it. So, you know, you deliver your lesson and whether you've delivered it poorly or wonderfully or, you know, they, they learn in different styles, kinetically, auditorially, all different ways. And so, at the end of the session, what do I want you to do? That's it. That's all you've got to answer. And 90% of them, they, they won't be able to answer it because they get caught up in maybe the visual of the ball or the camera that you're looking at them from, the TV screen, the ball, and the track man, and, and the feels but they need to walk out of the lesson. What do I need to do? So, if you can walk out, write down in a simple one line, guess what? He said, keep my weight on the inside of my right foot. That's it. Wonderful. You've achieved a result. And so too should the pro be able to do that. That's uh, <laughs> that's the one thing I'd say. Very good. All right. We're going to move on to a, a couple of things just from your experiences of, of this is a best and worst, and I want a best and worst that you've seen on tour. Mm. Driver of the golf ball, best and worst. Whoa, probably Robert Gutierrez, best driver. He did play with him two rounds. Uh, I was coaching actually, congressional, um, and he didn't miss a fairway for two rounds. I just amazing, like just bombed it straight and high, but straight. You don't really see many straight ball flight hitters. Um, they always curve the ball left and right, right to left, and but he just hit it straight. He's one of the great drivers that I've seen. Uh, give me the flip side to that. Who <laughs> That's easy. even makes it to the second <laughs> Esteban Toledo. <laughs> <laughs> we, I caddy for Jeff Hogan. We won here in Texas, and I'll never forget this round as long as I live. Esteban Toledo <laughs> hit it sideways. Couldn't hit it, right? We're walking up the uh, 18th hole, round two, trying to make the cut. Jeff had six over first day. He's six under second day, and we know the cut's one under. We can see it on the board. So, Jeff has to make birdie. Esteban's shot. Two over and two under. And so he's walking up the last even par as well. <laughs> and I remember Jeff about 50 metres past Esteban's drive. And he, I can't say exactly what he said, but in as many words, if he makes birdie and makes the cut and I don't, I'm giving up golf. And uh, and sure enough, Esteban drains a snake and, and <laughs> I will be missed one. I'll never, ever forget that moment because Jeff just looked at me. And if you know Jeff, you know that he uh, he, he does have a bit of an anger uh, at times or used to. And, oh, my God, I walked off that hole and I so wanted to g- giggle, but I couldn't and had to roll with the punches for the next half an hour until he simmered down. But, yeah, the, the great Esteban made the cut in Texas that year <laughs> and shouldn't have. Um, iron player. Best? Yeah. Allenby. Best and worst. Allenby by, Allenby, Allenby by, best. by mile. And worst? Well, I can't say Esteban twice. Um, so- <laughs> <laughs> before you could putt. <laughs> you could putt. Um, gee, who's another one that can't necessarily strike the ball that well? I'll come back to you there. I, I, I'm drawing- Or even is there someone you just hate that you just want to get it off your chest? <laughs> <laughs> Rory Sabatini. No, no. Shooter. Yeah, I knew. I was actually waiting for that. That's right. No, but he can actually um, hit it. Um, short game genius. Well, other than Phil, who who's amazing, my boy, Bads, was right up there. He ranked in the top- few in the world for up and downs over the years that when I was caddying for him because he was hitting the ball not great. But up and downs, oh my God, you should have seen. so yeah, he's a great exponent. But but Brett Rumford's right up there from the traps. Yeah. Uh, and I, I love watching Rummy play. So probably I'd have to say Rummy. And who gets within thirty of the green and you're thinking at least you're not going to make the cut? <laughs> Alumpy. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, nah. Not even- That's right. You don't need to explain yeah. it. <laughs> nah, classic. That's fine. Now, Putter, you've, again, just going through the bag. Putter, you've had the joy of spending some time with 
Yeah, and we've had a tales from the tour about the great man. The Crenshaw, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. But if you had to have someone who had to hold a 10-footer for your life. Yep. Tiger. Sorry, it's a bit. Tiger. He, I mean, in, in his height, I remember looking at the stats and I forget, I think it was the year he just ran ramp at 2000 when he won three majors and then the fourth on the back end of the two, 2001 season. He didn't miss a part inside six feet for a calendar year. Now, now just comprehend that. I tell anyone to go and set a six-foot putt up in your lounge room that's straight on carpet and try to hold, try to hold 100 in a row. Right? Well, this guy held, held, I think it was 700 or whatever it was, putts on breaking greens under pressure, downhill, uphill <laughs> with spike marks, and didn't miss a putt for the season. I don't know if there's ever been a greater clutch putter. And, and sorry for anyone who doesn't know who I'm about to refer it to, yet- after all those lessons, how many times has Divot brought just a putt to a uh, golf? Anyway, no, moving on. Uh, who who would you never want to putt for your life? Robert Gutierrez. <laughs> this poor kid. How did he even make any money? Mate, he's the greatest. No, Robert Gutierrez, unbelievable wall striker. But yeah, that 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 run round I was talking about in Congressional. We played for, with him in for, for two rounds. First round, he hit eighteen. Oh, sorry, fourteen fairways. Obviously, he's only fourteen. Hit fourteen fairways, eighteen greens, and shot one under. Next day, he hit 14 fairways, 17 greens, and shot even par. Yeah, no, wouldn't want him over a three-footer to save my life, no. Uh, okay, Swagger, who can strut? Who is the best strutter, strutter you've ever seen? Oh, got to be Fred Couples. Like, he, he struts going for a coffee. Uh, like, <laughs> there's never been a greater strutter. Uh, yeah, definitely Fred. And then best bloke, or chick. Best. You've ever come across no, him? I mentioned him a bit, but Tim Clark is right up there. The old South African Tim Clark, he, he, he's a ripper. I'm not sure where he's at these days. I think he's sort of done because he had injuries and all the rest of it. He was on a wait list there for quite a while trying to get back on the tour, but um, underrated, finished second in majors I think three times, And but genuine jet outside of the golf course. And honorary golf baron. Um, yeah, that's right. That's right. Now, now, Kipper the name dropper. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to lighten things oh. up just to finish up. So we're going to do a little bit of word association where I want you to come up with one or two words. I'll, I'll say a name mm. and I just want you to come up with one or two words because these are just a sample of the names that have been brought up in the time that we've So what am I supposed to do this. here? So I'm just going to say someone's here, name here and you're going to give me one or two words that immediately spring to mind. God. You ready? Yeah. Norman. His house. <laughs> Went there. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, I didn't ask. You're going to thump me on this. I'm going to thump you back. Phil. Mickelson, not me. Uh, what has the word? Football. Yeah. Played lots of football with him. Right, gr- gridiron. I'll pay that. Yeah. Tiger. Just, uh, what, what, only one word. Well, you can have to, I'll give you, look, I'll give you up to five words. Oh, look, I'll, I'll just, I only need one there. I, I still think goat. All right, Jack. Another goat. <laughs> well, there, can, there can only be one goat. No, no, no. I will say about Jack, if I had to say sort of a couple of words. As much as you class, want. He gets class as much personified. As yeah, okay. Augusta. Heaven. Beds. Hopeful. Ellenby. Oh. No, one of a kind ball striker. Privileged is what I'd say for me to be able to see it. Celine Dion. Oh, hell of a player. Flusher. Yeah. She's oh. really is. Jenna Jamison. Uh, likes vodka cranberries. There's a tip. And Elton John. Saw me dance. <laughs> Three words, but anyway. I like that. Now, to finish off, Kipper, and this is something that is very dear to to our hearts, I want you to sell me golf. Hmm. I want you to tell me what it does well, what it could do better. But in essence, I want you to sell me the game of golf. 
Yeah, well, put me on the spot here. We should have talked about this earlier, but if I no, it, no not really though, because I, I, I can sell it very quickly. It's a game for life because it encompasses everything that you need to learn to be a good human in really eighteen holes. You need to be able to manage your tempers when they come. You need to be able to share in excitement or joys when they come in life. You need to be able to be calm. You need to be able to be calculated. You need to be able to be methodical at times with what you're doing. You also need to be carefree and walk with the wind in your hair. You need to have, I believe anyway, friends or family around you for life and that provides that challenge. It provides challenges. So too does life. Uh, And in the end, you never can get perfect at it. And that's like life. You never can be perfect at life. So for me... Golf is life, and I think it's why I fell in love with it. You just, it's an ongoing, brilliant journey. And I've got to tell you, that was outstanding. And with that, we're going to bring this podcast to a close. Um, thanks to our guest and golf baron, uh, <laughs> Dion Kipping. Um, we do take the piss, um, <laughs> but I assure you that it is mainly out of envy. Remember to hit subscribe button at golfbarons.com, our new website, to make sure you never miss an episode. Keep an eye out for Golf Barons on Fox Sports and KO in Australia and on Prime Video in the USA and the UK. Season 2 should be dropping late March, early April. And until next time, Barons, add some swagger to your swing. Bye-bye.